And really the changing world that we've lived in um, really has lent itself to, I think, sometimes the medicalization of sadness. Okay, and there's a great book written by a guy called Horowitz who actually has written about that, that have we medicalized sadness? So your question's around how do we differentiate possibly sadness to what's this beast called clinical depression? Hi guys, this podcast explores the importance of our connection, well-being and mental health. To reason with someone is to motivate them to do or accept topics, ideas and issues through discussion and having conversations. This podcast is for those that want to raise their awareness, change their perspective or just have a good time. My vision is to help people find reason to live, to grow and to understand. I do that through this podcast as well as counselling individuals that want to help themselves. No, no, no. No, he needs to know. I just think he's gonna talk and it's gonna make a lot of sense. Hold up. Wait a minute. Something ain't right. One man. One podcast. Three, two, one. Reason with me podcast, episode 16. Welcome back, guys. We've got the first psychiatrist on the podcast today, Dr. Mark Rowe. He's a consultant psychiatrist who has a special interest in managing mood disorders and adult ADHD. He's been a visiting medical officer to the Northside Clinic in Greenwich, which he worked in the Specialist Mood Disorders Unit. His interest in mood disorders involves subtyping depressive disorders and diagnosing accurately persistent mood disorders, which may have failed to respond to previous treatments. Mark utilizes the MAP, or Mood Assessment Program, which was developed by the Black Dog Institute. This helps assist the assessment of both unipolar and bipolar conditions. Dr. Rowe has a familiarity with a variety of pharmacological treatments used in the management of mood disorders. He has been on the advisory board for different pharmaceutical companies. Dr. Rowe sees patients with a provisional diagnosis of primary mood disorder or of attention deficit disorders. He sees patients with mood disorders from age 15 and onwards and ADHD from 16 and onwards. Mark is an awesome psychiatrist. He has a world of knowledge and I can't wait to start picking his brain about all things depression and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. All right, Mark, thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Jackson. Thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, it's a great, great to be on. Awesome. So we'll, we'll jump straight in, Mark. Why don't you tell us who the hell are you and what do you do? Okay. Well, uh, my name's Mark Rowe. I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, so that's a medical practitioner who's um, subspecialised in the discipline of psychiatry. So a lot of people uh, get us confused with psychologists. Um, and so essentially the, the major difference there is that psychiatrists are doctors who have, as I said, subspecialized. So like an orthopedic surgeon, he's a doctor who's subspecialized in orthopedics. A uh, vascular surgeon is a doctor who's subspecialized in vascular surgery. So I've subspecialized in mental health disorders. Whereas psychologists have gone to university and studied psychology and then normally done a master's to, or a clinical application of their theory of psychology. So essentially, a lot of people talk about the difference as being, oh, you're the guys that can prescribe pills then. All right. Um, and so it's a lot more than that, unfortunately. I think a lot of people feel that, you know, I go along to the psychiatrist to get my pills and I go along to the psychologist to have a nice chat with them. But obviously, a psychiatrist should be able to incorporate uh, both of those uh, 
aspects of, of management. And I work uh, full-time in a private practice facility, um, Jackson, so um, essentially seeing patients that primarily have uh, a referral around mood disorders, so that would include depression, bipolar disorder, admixed with some anxiety, and also um, patients with uh, ADHD is the, is the other area that I've um, got a, an area of a significant interest in. All right, so that's really insightful. And I think, yeah, a lot of people do sort of put you into this uh, box that is, you're the pill, pill pressure, you know, yes. um, uh, which, yeah, I guess it is, it is so much more, um, especially when you're studying and expertising in such um, significant areas that need support yeah. in, I think you guys and your voice is so important. So you you said your main, your main area is, is de depression and, and bipolar. How did you get, what made you sort of go down that path, Mark? Yeah, look, it's interesting because a lot of the training of, of, of psychiatrists is public hospital training. That's exclusively where you train. And a lot of the presentations to public hospital psychiatry are often psychosis, um, depression also, but perhaps to a lesser extent. So private practice psychiatry can be very different. I think um, I've always leant towards the idea of, 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 of trying to help people. You know, that's how I emerged into medicine in the first place. And I see depression as, 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 as an area which I guess all of us can identify with to a degree because we've all had, we'll talk about this perhaps a little bit more, we've all had depressed days. Um, and so when you see someone who's had that pervasively and, and, you know, living with it on and off for a long period of time, I think you can over-empathise or empathise in a sense. And as opposed to illnesses like schizophrenia, which are, you know, very different type of illnesses where psychosis is something that very few of us um, may have experienced to certainly that extent. So I think I identified with people, not technically ever had clinical depression myself, but identified with what's that, what that's like. And of course, there's a large number of people, you know, it's one of the commonest presentations to psychiatry. I've talked a lot about schizophrenia in public hospitals, yet there's only 1% of the population that have that disorder, yet uh, depression is, is, is much more um, prevalent than that. So um, that's how I sort of uh, developed an interest. I think it also lends itself well to both biological and non-biological um, types of uh, management, whereas some of the other areas of psychiatry perhaps uh, less so relatively. Um, and then I emerged into the development of bipolar disorder because I thought it was, was, was very interesting when you see that if people are wrongly diagnosed with having uh, what's called unipolar depression or one directional depression, that it can make a huge difference uh, in their delay in accessing appropriate treatment. So, uh, yeah, I guess I just I just did uh, my rotations in psychiatry and I and I gravitated towards uh, that area. Yeah, I think that that's. I mean, it's so true. It's so prevalent. I think it's one in five now at the moment. People can mm. have experienced uh, depression in their lifetime, which is pretty drastic and yeah like you're saying a lot more uh significant than the one percent of australia who have schizophrenia mm. um so i think that, that 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 makes sense so so obviously the and what we'll talk about yeah definitely a little bit later more, more on this depression and the scale of it all and uh, maybe mm. like the different types but you must be seeing a lot of people with all different types and then there's a bipolar and then there's all the potential trauma that's coming with all of that as well. So, mm. you know, obviously you, you've studied a long time and, and, you know, doctor on top of that is, is one thing, but then 
seeing these clients day in and day out, where do you pull your strength in order to do the work that you do? Yeah, look, I think you either I, I think you either innately have that desire and and an ability. Someone asked me this the other day and I said, look, I'm one of three boys. I'm the middle. I've got an older brother six years older and a younger brother three years younger. And I found myself, if my older brother had a fight with his girlfriend, I found myself sort of consoling her uh, as, a, as a sort of as a teenager. So innately, I, I, I do like to please people and, and uh, ensure that people are, are feeling okay. So seeing people in distress, uh, I feel uncomfortable with that. So I think I naturally uh, had that desire and I enjoy day in, day out. I don't think you can fake it in, in this game of communicating with people. There are aspects I don't enjoy, like the paperwork, and I think I can join the queue with a lot of others around that, but the actual engagement with other human beings, which lends me to your question, um, I get my strength, I guess, from my family. I think the most important thing in life, I often ask patients, what is life about for them? And I think it's about the human beings that you travel with throughout your life, whether it's your family, your best mm. friend, your work colleagues, etc. I mean, we're innately gregarious animals. And uh, mm. for the majority of us, uh, there are a small percentage with certain personality subtypes that aren't, but we're mainly gregarious animals. And that's where, you know, it's like going on a holiday on your own. It's not that exciting. Or, mm. you know, having a triumph internally. You want, you want to share that with the people that are closest to you and, uh, mm. you know, uh, so I get my strength really from from having my family around me, and and with COVID, uh, currently I've got two adult daughters, and and they're living with us, so it's uh, it's, it's it's really good. And of course, my wife. I uh, even when going through training uh, to become a psychiatrist, I always wondered about how the female registrars who were young mothers and were able to manage a household and then try and get study and and put it all together, whereas my wife would kindly yeah. <clears throat> um, park off my time and, and make sure that I was available to, to, to do the study. So I think it's uh, like a lot of people say, you, you have a lot of people behind you to to turn out there. So that's that's essentially where I get my strength, I think, Jackson. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a lovely answer. And I think that is so important. And, and you're right, we are innately um, drawn towards others and, and in finding that connection. And I think we have always we always strive for that in whatever way mm. it looks, whether it's friends, whether it's family. So you're right. I think mm. it's, it's very hard to do the work, this type of work, um, or just holding space for people when you don't have a good support yeah. system um, or yeah. a good stable base for yourself. Yeah. 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 Plus I've also got two dogs wandering around here and whatever day you've had and you, I open the remote control garage door. They're wagging their tails, looking forward to, to seeing you, whether you've had a fantastic day or a not so fantastic day. They're very consistent in their yeah, <laughs> in the way of the game. That's so true. So. They don't they don't care what you've done. They don't care whether it was a good day or a bad day. They're just here and they're stoked and that's just yeah. the purest yeah. unconditional love there is. Oh, yes. so true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's good. I, we've had a couple of dogs zoom past on the on the podcast before. I'm sure you would have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might hear mine if if a dog runs outside. You might hear mine uh, start to. That's okay. To you know, any any input's good input for these chats. So I'm sure they're trying to deliver some sort of communication that's yeah. important <laughs> for us to hear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just going down the, the line of of depression and in, in a little mm. bit more detail. Uh, 
I guess, yeah, that, that's, there's plenty of things I could have picked your brain about today, Mark. And I think that depression is probably the topic that I wanted to go towards. So I guess reason with, with me and, and, and others, and tell me like the, the importance of understanding depression and maybe some of the different types, like you said, we, we are, everyone experiences depressed days and, and mm. when do we need to start being aware of that and checking in? Look, I think, I think it's really difficult, um, Jackson. It's not clear cut. You know, people think, you know, there's a medical illness like uh, streptococcus pneumonia where you can go into the doctor, you can say, look, doc, doc, I'm coughing up. I don't feel well. He says, we'll get an X-ray done, cough up a bit of gunk. We'll put it on an agar plate where we grow the bacteria and we can tell you what antibiotic works for that. And then every doctor can say, you've got streptococcus pneumonia. The problem in, in psychiatry is that it's, it's not as clear cut as that, okay? It's based on symptoms that are on signs, so what people experience themselves or what sometimes we can observe, you know, we can observe uh, depressive states in people. And really the changing world that we've lived in um, really has lent itself to, I think, sometimes the medicalization of sadness, okay? And there's a great book written by a guy called Horowitz who actually has written about that, that have we medicalized sadness? So your questions around how do we differentiate possibly sadness to what's this beast called clinical depression? Mm. So sadness is a normal human response. You know, I have um, patients that are going through grief. I have a lady at the moment whose husband uh, died and it's about two months down the track and she says, I'm continuously crying. And I said, well, that's a normal human process to ensure that you remember uh, that person that they were attached to you. So we can all have depressed days. And often I quote that, you know, I'm a mad sportsman and we may get into that later or a sports fan. Um, and I say to people, oh, my football team last, lost last night. I'm a bit depressed. Well, that's a, that's a normal human reaction, I guess, to, to disappointment, okay, or to an event that's happened in your life. And for that following day, you might say, I'm a bit down, or maybe two days if you're a really avid fan. But by next week, you're up and running and, and things have changed. Well, that's different with clinical depression. Clinical depression is essentially, one of the major factors is a time frame. So for to be clinically depressed or medically depressed, if you want to use that term, you have to have been down in the dumps for the majority of the days of the week for at least a two-week time frame. Okay, And that's to try and uh, eradicate sort of sadness that happens for people or having a bit of a down day, as people quote. And that's one of the core parameters of the diagnosis of clinical depression, that time frame and having the majority of the days. Mm. The other thing that tends to happen in clinical depression as opposed to sadness is a big fancy word called anhedonia, which is the opposite to hedonism. And hedonism is to seek out pleasure. So it's the inability to derive enjoyment or pleasure from activities that you usually enjoy. So if you have a sad day and you might go home and say, oh, well, when I'm going to blast on that music, my favourite song, or I'm going to watch my favourite TV program, and you get a lift from it and it sort of alleviates your your mood state, that doesn't happen in clinical depression. People Mm -hmm. struggle to find enjoyment and pleasure out of things that usually give them pleasure. Mm. And they're, they're the two sort of cardinal sort of entry criteria, if you like, into the, into the diagnosis. Mm. Um, and then we have other symptoms that we, that we look at. Um, so other symptoms that can occur with people with pervasive mood 
uh, depression is sleep disturbance, um, which either can be too little or too much or waking up during the night. We can have changes in appetite, which can go both ways, changes in weight, uh, energy levels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're, they're the things that separate, uh, I guess, clinical depression from uh, sadness or, or grief or upset or frustration, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, uh, somewhat controversially, I'd say that maybe why we have gone a bit towards medicalizing sadness is, is the nature of society has changed. Yeah. We're uh, less community orientated in general. Mm. Um, so I think we're less uh, connected with our neighbours. So maybe when we were stressed 40 years ago, we'd yell over the fence to the neighbour and come and have a cup of coffee and whatnot. Now we're all relatively time poor. We're unable to do that. We may be internalising a lot of that stress and it's coming out as, as, well, I perhaps need to go to the doctor or the counsellor to talk about it. That's not, however, Jackson, to undermine, you know, the seriousness of clinical depression. I think it's important that everyone has a, an appropriate screen, um, whether they are depressed or not. And so I'd say to everyone, that's, you know, listening out there, if you're feeling that way, definitely get an assessment. But not all assessments, obviously, will lead to, to clinical depression. Hmm. And I think that it's so important and, and so accurate. And we talk so often um, on the podcast like this is we, we're, we're way more individualistic now and, and we don't have that community base as we did. I'm sure there's mm. plenty, of, plenty of communities that do try and, and yeah. flourish with that and try and bring that back into that tribe base. But yes. yeah, we are, we are time poor. We are, mm. um, you know, busier than ever. And we, especially in times of crisis, like a pandemic coming out of nowhere, mm. we, don't, mm. we don't have the same outlets. We, we, no. then, we then stop doing these things that we have access to uh, that yes. we're at least trying to get us out of this thing. So would you say no. that there, you've seen an increase in, in clinical depression or at least um, people coming in for assessment? Yeah, certainly people were coming in for assessment. I think there's, there's a better community awareness and societal awareness, you know, thanks to you doing things like this and, you know, institutes like the Black Dog Institute yeah. and Beyond Blue and there and, and, and celebrities or well-known people prepared to talk about having mm. had their experiences with, with, with mental health disorders. I mean, it's not dissimilar. I heard many years ago, I think it may have been five or ten years ago now, Kylie Minogue had some breast cancer scare. And I understand that the number of people that presented for mammograms, young women that yeah. presented for mammograms that year was phenomenal mm. uh, because of hearing her story. Mm. And I think it's not dissimilar when, when people talk about um, depression and there's a Premier of Western Australia, Jeff Gallup, some years ago that gave a public speech about his depression. I think that helps others to think because one of the biggest things that uh, I've been fighting, I guess, or all of us have been fighting in the battle working in mental health is stigma. And I'm sure yeah. you must have spoken about this previously and it yeah, yeah. continues to be a huge issue. Um, and to that extent, I say people are prepared to talk about depression, but no one's prepared to say, look, I have had a psychotic process or whatnot, because they're still deemed to be very stigmatising. And if you have a look at psychiatric uh, hospitalisations where people used to live, um, you know, so-called chronic hospital institutions, mm. most of them spotted across the country were actually river access. So we're going back to the bad yeah. old days where they wouldn't 
they wouldn't bring mentally ill people in through the, the normal part of the city. Well, it was, was illegal, sort of, wasn't it? And the king wouldn't allow it or something and they had to go underneath so that they weren't allowed on the king's streets or something like that. Yeah, but I'm talking about even in Australia. I'm yeah, talking no, about yeah. The, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, so, you know, the, 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 you know, where I worked in Queensland in Brisbane um, prior to moving to, to Sydney, the jail is adjacent to the chronic uh, hospital at, at Alston Park or Wagal. So it's, um, you know, we, we, this is still the biggest issue. And, and a lot of people, getting back to the difference between psychologists and psychiatrists, is a lot of people feel that they're heavily stigmatised to see a psychiatrist, yeah. whereas psychologists uh, carry less stigma uh, because, you know, you can so-called be a worried well, I guess, without having that stigma. So, it's a, uh, it's yeah. Look, it's a, it's it's a huge issue that 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 still emerges. And I have occasionally patients that say to me, "Oh, doctor, can you give me a certificate, but on the letterhead, not write that you're a psychiatrist," um, because they they they're ashamed um, in inverted commas to to present that, or or they're worried about how work colleagues are going to perceive it. Mm. So, and I, and the only way we can beat stigma is through uh, education and community involvement. In fact, there's a, I don't know whether you're aware of it, but there was a fantastic movement in Italy, in Trieste, in Italy, uh, where, the, where the society got um, behind people that were locked up in chronic mental health institutions, and they actually made it sort of not compulsory to be in, you know, they, uh, it was a law against compulsory um, hospitalising people for long term, and they provided jobs for them in the community, and it was a uh, sort of a, a sort of mini uprising, if you like, and and like a lot of change, you know, it needs to come from community. So, but I think uh, you know, Black Dog Institute, a lot of advertisements now on TV. You would never have seen those advertisements years ago mm. if you're feeling anxious, mm. what it is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, yeah. So getting back to your question, yes, more people are presenting, but I think whether there's a real increase in the in 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 cases of depression um, or whether we're seeing more because people are presenting more, uh, I guess, becomes the question. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And the changing nature of society. You know, as you said, our outlets are not as prevalent. Um, and arguably that all comes from quality of life. Our, our actual quality yeah. of life, in my opinion, has dropped because yeah. for, for the average person to own a home compared now, compared to years ago, the hours that you need to work to do that, is, it means that our actual quality of life has, has dropped a little bit in that if you, if you equate it on those grounds. Mm. And, I, and I think, you know, that, that, that busyness that that then creates for people um, Definitely something that I, I'd like to hear your opinion on, but a lot of people are going quick fixes. Let's go to the GP and get diagnosed with, um, sorry, get prescribed with Lexapro and then I'll do a round of whatever that lasts and just wait until I feel a bit better with no actual commitment to anything besides the medication. Mm. Oh, absolutely. There's a huge um, subset of that out there, Jackson. And that's, that's multi-factors multi, multi contributing to that. I think one factor that you may or may not be aware of is the nature of the antidepressant has changed. So the tricyclic antidepressants that were used prior to the development of Prozac, which is the so-called new generation antidepressants, they have issues around side effects, particularly in overdose and, and lethality around cardiac concerns. So GPs wouldn't be as ready in that, in that era to be going prescribing those medications without perhaps a psychiatric assessment. The advent of the safer and um, 
arguably more tolerated, even from a side, you know, a normal side effect profile SSRI medication that we tend to use these days. It's easy to prescribe them, um, and therefore GPs are time poor as well. I mean, it's a you know you can go into the financial aspects of yeah. if you're a GP having to spend 45 minutes with a patient to mm. take an adequate history, talk to them, etc. From an income perspective, relatively. Yeah you're being compromised as opposed to seeing three 15-minute consultations. Yeah. Um, so that that's one of the factors. The other factor is the patient demand, okay? Yeah. The patient goes in and said, look, I haven't got the time or money to be going and seeing a, a therapist doc. Can you just give me something uh, now? So I think, uh, you know, that's another factor. Um, you know, pharmaceutical companies, arguably, you know, they um, tend to be pushing biological management. So, I mean, one of the one of, a lot of the discussion now, certainly worldwide and within the College of Psychiatrists, is how much can pharmaceutical companies sponsor education of doctors in as far as conferences and information they're giving them, et cetera, et cetera. And one could say, well, it's necessary to have any education about a new drug, but my concern about that or my concern is that maybe that's the only way you're being educated as to how to manage certain illnesses you're not getting a global yep. you know the, mm. the drug companies are may not sponsoring a cognitive behavior therapist to come and talk at the conference and deliver that or a um you know mindfulness based therapist coming to mm. talk about that delivery so mm. there are some concerns that either innately or, or, or subliminally you may be thinking first thing let's go to a medication and and uh, you know certainly GPs are getting a lot of their their knowledge around medication via that avenue because uh, you know they can't be across everything in the same depth as what specialists um, can be. So look, it's a it's a, it's it's multifactorial. That the answer to that question, I think. Yeah. Jackson, yeah. yeah, and and definitely a Pandora's box sort of question. Yes. Sometimes yes. they are like that though, and I think the the, the response you gave is, is exactly right. There's so many things that that make up this. I I. I guess the one thing that I'm interested in with that is, is the people that are going and seeking, you know, the GP support and wanting to do that quick fix and the supply and demand of, of, I guess we want it now. I think you mentioned now, 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 mm. um, these medications, are, are they okay to be doing them by themselves or, or are we going to see change for people's um, moods and people's depression or, do we need to couple that with other things? Yeah, look, it's uh, once again, that's a Pandora's box question. I mean, there's no doubt that the management of any mental health disorder, what innately we're trained to think is biopsychosocial. So there are biological factors that you may need to manage. There are psychological factors that you may need to manage. And there are social factors that you may need to manage. In fact, in psychiatry, when we're trained, we're trained on something called a multi-axial system, which is five axes of viewing a particular person when they present. Mm -hmm. And axis one is a major mental health disorder. So it might be they're diagnosed with depression or substance abuse. And that's your, obviously your axis one, your, your primary focus. But axis two might be their personality style or personality disorder that may be driving an interplay as to how they're presenting or how they're experiencing the depression. Axis three is physical illness. So if I've got asthma and I get short of breath and I've got anxiety, I might get terribly anxious about my shortness of breath, okay? Or if I've got thyroid dysfunction 
which can be a cause of depression, that may be driving my axis one diagnosis. Axis four mm. is psychosocial stresses. So why might I be depressed if I can't pay my bills next month or um, I'm living in an abusive relationship or um, et cetera, et cetera. So axis four may be driving axis one. Nexus 5 is something called the global assessment of functioning, which is out of 100, how functional has that person been in the last either 3 or 12 months, depending on how you look at it. So I think when someone presents, it's not as simple as, okay, this is depression, I'll give them an SSRI, okay, or a Lexapro. It's about why is this person presenting? I say to myself, why is this person presenting to my rooms at this point of time now? Okay, and then you've got to look at what what those are, um, and to that extent, uh, I might give a bit of a plug for this, so to speak. But there is a tool that I tend to use, developed by the Black Dog Institute, called the MAP. M A P. It's an acronym for Mood Assessment Program, and what that is is it's an extended questionnaire type of approach which looks at multiple factors you know what are the stresses in that person's life in the last three months 12 months what are their personality traits is this likely to be part of a bipolar disorder etc and it's a tool that the clinician clinicians that uh, use it can can find very helpful to make sure you're not missing some of those biopsychosocial factors that are contributing around whether whether i think you're sort of half asking are they dangerous is it dangerous or what are we or, or what, what could be an outcome of, of doing that i guess the biggest danger is neglecting the other causes yeah. to me you know i've seen many people get, get treatments for a biological disorder when really it's it's around their attachment to their parents or abuse yeah. history or um, you know, bullying in the work environment that they're experiencing and they've presented with, I'm not sleeping well, I'm not, not those necessarily core symptoms that I said of depression, that pervasive mood disturbance and anhedonia, but they're presenting with those other symptoms and the doctor's GP perhaps or otherwise has spent five or 10 minutes with them and said, look, I'll give you a spray. So what happens is mm. then you start off this, well, it's not working and you can then go down the next path or try a different antidepressant or try a different one, et cetera. You've got to go back. And that's why when patients are referred to me yeah. and they say, look, I've seen such and such diagnosed with depression, I sort of have a saying, love many, trust few, and always paddle your own canoe. So I want to take a new history, okay, and make sure for myself that it's, um, it's incorporating what I think might be contributing to that. And you may not even get that information on the first instance that you see someone. Like I saw a lady who always had a husband accompanying her to the appointment, okay? Mm. And it didn't. It came out after about 10 or so sessions that there'd been some childhood abuse perpetrated by her brother, but she was too ashamed to, to yeah. sort of acknowledge that in front of her husband. So there are lots of, um, there's a lots of different scenarios where, um, you know, it can complicate uh, whether antidepressants. There's also... Professor Parker, who, who, who is, a, is a psychiatrist that's uh, well-renowned here in Sydney and was the head of the Black Dog Institute for many years, who I uh, had worked with when I first came to Sydney, he, he's often asked the question, you know, why do you think there's been an upsurge in bipolar 2 disorder, which is something we, we may or may not get a chance to talk about. Mm. And one of, his, one of his thoughts is that there, maybe there's an overuse of stimulant medication for ADHD in younger people now, and that may be triggering a sort of, uh, I guess, the mood regulator, if mm. you like. It's just a theory. It's no, there's no uh, firm evidence to support that. But, you know, could SSRIs... One thing that we do know about SSRIs, that it can emotionally flatten people. 
Yeah. So people will often talk about just not feeling as a result of taking their medication. Plateauing. So sometimes, yeah, plateauing. Uh, emotional numbness is probably another term that's used for it. So they're not yeah. depressed because they're not as crying or tearful, but they're not actually joyful either. Yeah. They're just sort of flattened. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I, I think the major concern about prescribing antidepressants is if you're missing what the other causes or other contributing mm. factors may be to that presentation. Yeah. Essentially. I think you, you put that so well. I mean, you, you, you did a, you did a great job in, in, in keeping it, you know, not up here with all the you know, psychiatry side of things. I think I understand it so well. And I'm so glad that that's that those tears or whatever you call them. Are axes. So, yeah. Axes yeah. are, are yeah. happening, you know? And I think, yeah. you know, if we start to think about that as a community, you know, yep then we're going to do better. A GP doesn't have time to do those. No, things. No, so a GP no. is going to say, boom, here's you go. Or the patient's going to mm. say, this is what I want. Blah, blah, blah. Had yeah. it. This is how it's yeah. going to work for me. It's like the, the map from the black dog. And I'll put that on my website, mm. but that and right. then having this, this theory of, of all the other factors, biopsychosocial, but all these other things and underlying causes, like that's what we need to be looking at. Mm. Um, mm. You know, if I take Panadol and I and I keep backing my bashing my head against the door, I'm gonna still have a yes. headache. You know, correct. So I've got to I've got to look at the other factors. Like, okay, that's probably causing the headache. You know, I got to yes. adjust that. And I think it's exactly yes. the same with our mental health, and we can't take those things for granted. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I'm 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 sort of taken taken aback by your response because I think it's so it's so well put. Sure with um mm-hmm. with especially how we how we see depression and, and there's so many other things that are at play and that one thing that leads to the other thing that leads to the other thing is it's true you know yeah. we are yeah. we, we, and that's and that's the trick i guess in being a holistic practitioner if you like jackson i mean some people will just do psychotherapy only perhaps and miss the biological some will just do biological only and miss the psychological yeah. some won't look at the environment that the person's in that they're unemployed that you mm. know they've got no validity in life because of that and, mm. and that's the tricky part negotiating all of those all of those domains i guess and um and so so that's why i like to work perhaps closely with psychologists as well but you know yeah. quality psychologists that I can um, entrust to to, to yeah. ensure that. And and a lot of people like to delineate between those two areas so that, you know, a lot of there are some psychiatrists that are purely talking therapy only and they'll say, can you do the medication? Because the patient will want to come back to the medication as an explanatory. Well, doctor, why aren't I better? I'm taking it. Whereas someone can park that and say, no, talk to Dr. Rowe about that. I'm going to focus on these difficulties that you're having in life so and of course all of this is as we've alluded to where does this have the expense and the cost of this in society so one of the systems that's wrought is the is 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 the public mental health system where you have to be terribly unwell to be able to access it because they've got limited resources and then there's the private system which can be arguably relatively costly for the average australian so there's that big gap in the middle and um, you know, with the advent of, of Medicare funding psychological sessions for 10, I think, up to 14 in rare circumstances in a calendar year, it can help. But it's, um, you know, some people need a lot more frequent uh, uh, assistance than that. So yeah. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that, that major gap in the system. Um, yeah. And also the public system is, is, is more of a crisis type uh, system rather than a rather than an enduring health maintenance type of uh, 
of, a, of, of a approach due to resources really i don't think people working in there are going oh well i only want to patch up you know they they, they want to do that holistic care but the, the resources and the system and the cost uh yeah which is a which is a big issue yeah yeah i think that you know that there's there's so many different ways we could we could go in and talking about all of those i think that there's mm. just there's just a lot of different spot fires that that uh, the government or um, our society try to, you know, put out one at a time. But yeah. it, it comes back to this thing: like we're complex, we're so complex. Yes. Humans are like yes. we still don't understand what we need to be understanding yes. about the brain. Yes, and, yes, that's right. And, um, you know, we got to treat people as a whole and and yes. as well as ourselves. And you know, I think that that's that's where we need to start, not this backwards think of prevention and, um, you know, intervention. It's like, mm, we need to, we need to just be more aware yeah. of what's, what's happening with us yeah. and, and others. And you've alluded to one of the other, you know, one of the questions is, you know, what gives you strength or what, you know, what, what keeps you going. I love this specialty of, of medicine because every single person that walks through the door is a different individual. Mm -hmm. And I often say this to patients that if I'm a surgeon and I'm my sixth gallbladder for the day and it all looks the same and I poke through the chest and my laparoscopic thing, for me, that would be relatively boring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even though people say to me, how can you see people with depression all the time? Well, I get to see different personality styles, different age groups, different genders, different, and, and everyone brings their individual flavour to how they experience it. So um, sort of I'm known by my patients of taking this sort of intrusive history. I even ask about pets, which is something that I've sort of uh, added in recent years as to whether people have pets. And I sometimes get a quizzical look, but uh, I've come to find that some people who have had trauma, particularly being misused by other human beings, will, will have a over attachment sometimes if there can be such a thing to animals and it can be a lead into mm. you know that often people talk about loving animals more than, than people in their lives but yeah. Um, yeah so important i think that's a great that's not intrusive at all i think it's so great i think it's, <laughs> it's so necessary because yeah it's a, we've got to find out what works for people and what, what helps them it's part of people's family isn't it <laughs> really yeah. Yeah. so i guess that, keeping that uh, that train of thought mark what What's, what works for you what, in terms of, you know, filling your cup back up? What's non-negotiable for you? You mentioned um, you're a big sportsman, but what, mm. what, what do you do for self-care that's non-negotiable? Well, look, as I mentioned, I, I, I love communicating with family and friends. I've, as I mentioned, I'm one of three boys. I, I was just been on the phone to my brother. Yeah, so, so with my brother, um, I, I, I talk with him frequently, obviously with my wife and, and, and children to share their days and, uh, you know, normalise you and equalise you, takes you out of a field. Actually, one of my daughters is a nurse, so... Uh, not in mental health, um, she works in the spinal injuries area, but um, you know, often she'll talk about uh, some aspects of her day. So I think that's showing. What they do know is non-negotiable is dad on a Saturday and watching sport. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a mad, I'm a mad uh, rugby league fan and that once again emanates from childhood. A lot of things are, uh, are rooted in your childhood modelling and, and whatnot. And, uh, mm. I, uh, when I lived in Brisbane, my father was keen on horse racing. Uh, I was keen on rugby league. He would drop me off at 
the Suncorp Stadium, then Lang Park, and uh, on his way, the race picked me up, and I'd watch three three grades of rugby league football, even as a 10-year-old. So uh, it's been in my blood and played it, and uh, all three of us had played it. So... That's where, where that's where that, that that interest lies. And I'm inherently competitive too. My kids will tell you if they beat me at a game, they've beaten me. I haven't been gentle, off, you know, and said, "Well, look, I'll let you win." So, um, <laughs> but 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 I, I guess the answer to your question is you get your strength from your patience. And um, you know, I think to see people improve and uh, you know their lives change, there's no greater gift. There's you know a lot of young people wanted are gravitating towards wanting to do psychology. I think the attraction of helping other human beings is a is a privilege. And every day when I go to work, I realise what a privileged job I have. Mm. You know, particularly when there are other jobs out there that you know aren't as um, rewarding. Um, obviously, people say to me, "Oh, geez, there must be terrible days." And yes, I've had patients you know take their own lives, and you know those things yeah. can affect you significantly but the vast majority of 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 my work you know i enjoy that interaction with 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 people so that that is a big large chunk of my life so you know i often i forget whether it's freud or jung who coined the term work love and play you need an equal sort of pie graph of those three things in your life and i and i think that's what i sort of just described without sort of formally uh uh looking at it in in that avenue so work's a big chunk of joy love with with family and friends and and i'm about to go out to lunch with three other male friends of mine at uh, uh shortly and uh you know the play is that is that is that recreation with with football and whatnot which um yeah or any sport i often say to people um you know if chinese marbles was uh you know live broadcast at world championships or something i'd be watching it <laughs> so that's the sort of attitude i have towards sport yeah, I love that. I think there actually was marble racing was the first one of the only things when all sports stopped with COVID. Okay. I literally was watching marbles run down. Oh, right. It was very okay. fun. I was like, when, when the AFL and the rugby league and the rugby union slowly came back, I was like, okay, I think I could do better than marble <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you'll take what you can get. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. That's right. Uh, and yeah, uh, we do what we can. But yeah, I think, I, you know, that those are really nice answers. And I think, you know, you do cover all those things and it's, it's interesting because it can't just be one thing for self-care. It has to be multiple and has to be a, mm. an inventory of things because, you know, if walking's your thing and it's raining, you can't decide I'm not going right. to do anything then. You've got to think of something else that's going to fill that cup back up. So all those yeah. um, responses are good. So what, um, Mark, what last question for you is what would a go-to book for you be? What's something that's been a big inspiration for you? Um, and what would you, yeah, I guess what, what, what stuck with you and been a big, you don't necessarily mean clinically, do you? You don't, I mean, mean... there are a lot of clinical books being dropped, but whatever. whatever. Okay. Well, I'll tell I've got an, I've got a perfect answer for that question. (laughs) Jackson. this, this, this book I was first introduced to by a psychiatrist colleague of mine after my mother passed away. So my mother passed away from breast cancer at age 60. That's many years ago now. She would have been 78 this year, so 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going through my own grief reactions, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, a psychiatrist colleague said to me, why don't you um, get a hold of this book called Tuesdays with Morrie? Okay. 
And uh, I said, oh, well, why? What it's, what's it about? And she told me a little bit about it, but uh, obviously left the rest of it up to me. And it's written by a fellow called Mitch Album, A-L-B-O-M. And it's a true story of a journalist, a sports journalist in the United States called Mitch Album, who um, was uh, commenting on a basketball game or something. And at the end of it, he saw a CNN alert and it said, tonight we're talking with Maury Schwartz, who's diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, Lou Gehrig is also another famous name in the sporting world. He was a famous baseball player for the New York Yankees years ago. And he developed this progressive muscular neuromuscular palsy, okay? It's neuromuscular degeneration disorder, which kills you. And Lou Gehrig, it was named after him. And Maury Schwartz was de had developed this illness. And Mitch Albin's connection with him was he was his sociology professor at university. And he was a very enigmatic, charismatic type of teacher that Mitch obviously had a lot of time for. And Mitch decided on that day that he was going to try and get hold of him. And he actually made a phone call and said, uh, Professor Swartz, this is Mitch Albin. I heard that. Da, 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 da. He said, you remember me? And of course, Professor Swartz has had many students through. I don't think he actually remembered him. But he said, look, I'd like to catch up with you. And so what happened was Maurice Swartz, it's sort of argued that his last lesson in life was educating his, 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 his young journalist um, student on what life's about, okay? Mm. And as he was dying from this disease, he was able to give to... And it's called Tuesdays with Maurice because every Tuesday, uh, Mitch Alvin would go over and meet with him and uh, he recorded a lot of what the uh, interactions were. And it's a book that my wife says to me now that, you know, every six months you should read if you're, you know, thinking about, you know, where life's at. So the problem with it, of course, is uh, unfortunately I have to say this, when I have a copy in the rooms and I lend it to someone, I never get it back. Um, so uh, it's the old adage, don't lend your books out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but... Uh, I think most people will find that a and which is an interesting book. It is, but it's got the worldwide, um, you know, phenomenal sales about it because I think Oprah Winfrey advertised it on her show many years ago. So, okay. you know, it, it it has that. But that's a that's a book that I think uh, is is very inspirational. Tuesdays with Murray. All right, mm. we'll put that up on the website as well. Along with where where can people find you, Mark and and. I don't, I don't know what, what do you have available and, and maybe, and even if there's some okay. writings that you well, have. Yeah. Well, look, I've done a little bit of uh, there's still a little thing I think on YouTube that I did where I worked at a, a former place at Lawson clinic, a little bit about what is depression. You know, we haven't got into the subtyping yet, so people can go on there and, 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 and have a look at that. Um, where I work, we're developing our website, we're updating our website. It's it's not a very thorough one at the moment, but I work at the Greenwich Specialist Consulting Rooms um, and there we're going to attach a few things. But most, if people are looking at information, not necessarily about me, um, uh, the Black Dog Institute, I think, has is is got a myriad of information, and I, I recommend that to most of my patients. I did do a I did do a webinar on bipolar two disorder with another professor, uh, more geared towards uh, psychiatrists, so more at that level. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, called Black and Blue Bipolar Two. Um, I'm not sure still whether that's publicly accessible. It, it was for a long while. I'm just not sure whether it still is now, Jackson. Okay. But um, 
Yeah, but obviously, you know, my main, I, I'm, I'm not technically an academic, so my main thrust of, of work is seeing patients. Yeah. Um, and I work uh, uh, four days a week at the moment, starting at 7.30 and finishing normally about 6.30, so full on and, and having uh, the one day a week, uh, one work Wednesdays uh, where I'm not working at the moment. So yeah. um, if people, you know, need to see me or need to see one of my colleagues, etc., the Greenwich Specialist Consulting Rooms is, is where I'm working out of at um, Greenwich. Yeah. Well, I will, I will do some digging and I'll see if those things are available and I'll put them on my website, Mark, the um, um, couple of webinars that you've done. And then, um, yeah, the black dog, I'll put that up there as well. Um, so I, I guess, Mark, it's an honor to have you in the field. I think this has been so important and I think um, the work that you're doing and just the knowledge that you have is, it's so um, pivotal in, in people's understanding and, and just the, I guess the passion of the work that, that you do and that, that sort of comes straight through. And yeah, it's an honor to have you on the podcast as well. So thank you very much for coming. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for strongly encouraging me and inviting me. It's, it's, it's lovely. And who knows, we may need to, to do it again soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Right. Mark. Thanks, Jackson. Cheers, mate. Do you want to find out more about how therapy can help you kick some goals? Go check out findreasontherapy.com.au or the Fine Reason Therapy Instagram page. 